Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova Said. I'm a host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Tatiana Zhurzhenko, one of the editors of War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Tatiana Zhurzhenko has a PhD in social philosophy. In 2002, Tatiana Zhurzhenko moved to Vienna as Lisa Meitner Fellow at the Institute for East European History, University of Vienna, where she conducted research on the identities and discourses in the Ukrainian-Russian borderlands. Tatiana Zhurzhenko teaches on the Eastern European politics at the University of Vienna. She's also the author of Borderlands into Bordered Lands, Geopolitics of Identity in Post-Soviet Ukraine, published in 2010. This book was awarded with the Best Book Prize uh, 2010 of the American Association for Ukrainian Studies and with the Bronze Award of the Association for Borderland Studies in 2012. Hello, Tatiana. Hello, Natalia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm really intrigued by this publication which appeared a few years ago, and I'm very happy that we will have this chance to discuss it today. So the title, War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, may sound uh, ambiguous and unclear, especially for those outside of the former Soviet Union. It's not quite clear what war is referred to. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, everybody who has some sort of memory of the Soviet Union will know almost immediately that the Second World War is meant here. The name of the book also appears symbolic, the ongoing military conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and now the conflict in Belarus, which was not happening when the volume appeared. Would you guide us through the idea of the volume and through the decision to focus on the three countries? Thank you, Natalia, and thank you for your invitation. I'm very happy um, to talk with you about um, this book, which I co-edited together with my colleagues um, from the Alexander Institute in Helsinki, Marco Kangaspura and Yusi Lassila, and also with um, another colleague. Um, she is now working at the University of Melbourne in Australia, uh, Julie Feder, uh, and I will later explain how we all somehow <laughs> came came together to to work on this book. Uh, but I wanted to start with the title. Indeed, the title uh, uh, might seem um, a bit laconic, maybe, <laughs> and not informative enough. But um, nowadays. Um, um, the the editors are not the only ones responsible for the title. You know, the, the publisher uh, has um, has a say also concerning the title. So in the end, it was a compromise uh, because the publisher wanted it short and to have like keywords in the title. So we ended up with uh, memory and war, war and memory. 
uh, and, and the three countries we are focusing on. But uh, initially the title was supposed to be something like renarrating heroism, making sense of suffering, Mem- memories of World War II in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. So it was more, in a way, more informative. <clears throat> uh, and uh, the idea of the book uh, emerged uh, from, from a small conference we had we held uh, at the Alexander Institute in Helsinki um, because Alexander Institute was uh, a partner in the project called Memory at War, Cultural Dynamics in Poland, Russia and Ukraine. And this project was um, um, hosted by Cambridge and led by Alexander Edkind and actually uh, my colleagues who are involved in memory studies uh, in, in our region, they, of course, uh, know about this project because it was one of the kind of milestones in, in the development of the field. And I was uh, lucky to be involved um, in one of the branches of this project, uh, which was um, settled in, in Helsinki, and um, our part of the project focused on uh, uh, media narratives and actually on Russia uh, more than on other countries, which is understandable for the Alexander Institute because Russia is their primary focus. So for me, it was also an interesting experience to switch from Ukraine to Russia and to be able to compare uh, these two countries and the dynamics of memory politics, especially on the local level. Um, so this is how the the idea of the book emerged. We, um, I think it was in autumn 2012, we had this um, under the title Narratives of Suffering, I guess, and, and uh, several very interesting papers. And as always, then we, we discussed how to make it into a special issue or a book. Um, and uh, uh, we had uh, papers on Russia, we had papers on Ukraine, we actually also had papers on some other post-Soviet countries, I think it was Estonia, but when we started to think about how to make it a book, we realized that we need um, we need a focus, we need uh, something which would make this book special, and we decided actually to focus on uh, Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus as a as three post-Soviet uh, states, which used to be the core of the the East Slavic core of the Soviet Union, and um, uh, having shared in the past like the Soviet commemorative culture. Uh, the Soviet kind of um, framework of remembering about uh, the Great Patriotic War. And our idea was to to try to trace uh, this diverging passes of, of um, these three countries in terms of, of their attitudes to, to um, the memory of Second World War and to to the interpretation of of uh, this event, but also transformation of 
um, of, of these commemorative cultures. So um, that's why we um, decided to focus on this on these three countries and to make our volume more coherent and also different from other collective volumes. And uh, this was uh, basically the last year before uh, the Euromaidan. This was the last year before the annexation of Crimea when we started to work on this and we invited um, other people to contribute, uh, renowned scholars as well as younger authors who just finished their dissertations. Um, and then uh, the year 2014 was uh, a kind of shock <laughs> for, I think, for, for all of us and uh, it also affected our our work because uh, it totally changed the context uh, of of uh, of the debate. Right, uh, the memory of the Second World War uh, became uh, not only politicized, but what we call it in the introduction, weaponized. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was really used uh, to to mobilize. Uh, um, uh, for example, in Ukraine, to mobilize uh, um, the the pro-Russian sentiment, and it was used to undermine the legitimacy of the Ukrainian state, and it was um, it, it it has become not just contested but really performed on the streets as as uh, somehow the, the the opposing sides used it as. A, <laughs> To, to frame to frame the the ongoing conflict in terms of fascism anti-fascism uh, and and uh, uh, notions like that yeah so uh, it was it it has become difficult <laughs> to to continue with with our project and um, the annexation of Crimea and then later the decommunization laws in Ukraine um, as I said, have, uh, have changed the context so that um, some chapters needed to be updated and we needed to think how we put this all together in this new post-2014 context. Um, but still, I think three underlying ideas we had in mind from the very beginning, uh, they, they uh, were central, still central for us. And this is to look not only on the official discourses and official memory politics, but also on grassroots initiatives and, and um, um, new communities of memory, uh, not only political actors, but also societal actors involved in memory politics, um, such as, for example, we, we we have chapters on uh, um, former Osterbeiter uh, in, in Ukraine. We have chapters on uh, uh, Afghanistan war veterans in Belarus. We have a, uh, we have a chapter on uh, uh, children of war um, in Russia. Um, so new communities of memory which uh, emerged recently, right? Um, so this was one one um, intention to um, to to, um, to look at at also at local commemorative cultures to to 
to approach various dimensions of, of our topic. Uh, and the second one was uh, to reflect on this generational shift, which is currently happening in in uh, in uh, in the field of collective memory in the post-Soviet states, the transition from communicative to cultural memory as far as the Second World War is concerned. So. Um, this uh, notions of communicative memory and cultural memory goes back to Jan and Elida Asman, uh, famous uh, German cultural um, cultural scientists and and historians, and um, it's it's uh, it's a kind of um, obvious uh, thought. I think that that. Uh, the last witnesses, people who experienced um, uh, the Second World War directly as soldiers, as uh, children, as witnesses, as um, um, people who, who, who um, uh, still remember these events from their personal experience, they are getting older and they are slowly... Uh, um, living right and and uh, this of course affects very much the way how post-soviet societies and not only post-soviet societies i think it concerns also of course um uh, other countries um how they uh, conceptualize the the world war ii and how how the memory um uh, of this event is recodified and and uh, re-narrated, uh, becoming part of the cultural canon and not just kind of biographic experience. Uh, so we um, we try to keep this in mind uh, when we um, uh, worked on this book, and of course. Uh, Probably the third organizing idea, the third uh, intention behind this project was to trace these divergent trajectories of the three post-Soviet countries, very different post-Soviet countries, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus, um, um, and to, um, to try to reflect on how the common uh, Soviet commemorative culture is being uh, transformed adjusted to the new political agenda in each particular case. Um, so uh, could you could we spend some time identifying the specificities of memory politics regarding the Second World War in these three countries? What are the main instances that make the memory of the Second World War in the three countries similar and different, as um, you uh, mentioned a little bit like in your um, final statement uh, when responding to the first question? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is, of course, uh, a big question, and I will be, I don't know if my answer is going to be complete, but I would probably start with the, uh, with uh, saying that, that actually, even in the Soviet era, despite the official Soviet canon, which was uh, imposed um on the Soviet society uh, from uh, from above, uh, there was uh, there were 
there were significant differences how collective memory uh, um, collective memory uh, functioned in in Ukraine, in Russia, and in Belarus. And uh, we know that this uh, in Belarus, for example, the, the myth of a partisan republic uh, was uh, shaped during the Soviet decades. Yeah, the 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 idea that the the uh, this partisan resistance, partisan movement was um, uh, so widespread in Belarus so that they could claim this as part, as, as their uh, collective identity, right? And uh, Vladislav Hrinevich wrote long time ago about on, on how actually the collective memory of Second World War in Ukraine was rather different from from Russia due to many facts, due to, of course, to the different um, experience that the, the population of Western Ukraine had with the, um, with the Second World War, due to the fact that the whole Ukrainian territory was actually occupied um, and experienced enormous... Uh, um, hardships and destruction and losses of population and and uh, destruction of the infrastructure and um, uh, due to the fact that basically the population the Ukrainian population to to some extent lived for two uh, or years or even longer after the under the the Nazi occupation yeah so this experience of being uh, on the occupied territory, uh, and so many other um, um, moments here, I think, are important. <clears throat> but of course, in the post-Soviet era, um, in the post-Soviet era, these uh, differences um, uh, became even more obvious, and this has to do, of course, with the trajectories of nation building, different trajectories. Uh, for example, Russia um, took this role uh, or uh, uh, represented itself as a successor of the the USSR, and of course as a as a successor of this legacy of great victory, um, which uh, in in the Ukrainian case. Uh, um, was one of the narratives in in Ukraine, but uh, it was contested by other uh, rather politically powerful narratives, right? Um, also, um, there have been differences in the political regimes which um, emerged in post-Soviet Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. In Ukraine, uh, we have much higher level of political competitiveness uh, and uh, so incentives actually um, for various political actors to instrumentalize competing narratives of uh, World War II, uh, which became especially Visible from the end of the 90s, probably, and, and with the with the Orange Revolution, but also during the the Yanukovych pres presidency. So this uh, this kind of instrumentalization of 
um, historical narratives, instrumentalization of the the memory of the Second World War became one of the political technologies used by different political forces. And um, unfortunately, it had um, this this um, polarizing effect of these political technologies was destructive for, for Ukraine. And we came to realize it rather late that, that, uh, that these uh, uh, political strategies were... Uh, yeah, so had negative consequences. Um, and in Belarus, um, Belarus also positioned itself uh, as a successor of the Belarusian uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, especially with Lukashenko um, becoming, having become president of Belarus. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, so the, the political regime in, in Belarus um, have been using the memory of the of the Great Patriotic War uh, to, to to consolidate kind of to consolidate the Belarusian society, but also um, to provide an ideological uh, background for 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 the for the. Um, post-Soviet Belarusian state. Uh, but um, we can also see uh, today in Belarus um, that, that actually both the opposition, the protesters, and the regime are referring to the to the uh, concepts and, and notions uh, of, of this historical narrative. We are referring to, uh, to, to the partisan tradition, referring to the the uh, fighting fascists and resistance and and uh, we saw the same actually in Ukraine uh, when both sides in 2014 uh, referred to the great patriotic war not only not only the anti-maidan protesters and the pro-russian protesters uh, um, appropriated this narrative fighting on on the on the right side but also the the pro-Ukrainian side referred to the victory in the Great Patriotic War to to claim this tradition and build a new narrative, uh, actually drawing these parallels and saying we we were uh, victorious in uh, 1945 and we are going to win again in in this war with Russia. So this was the um, the slogan, which, for example, the Ukrainian Institute of National Remembrance used um, in the first post-Maidan years to frame this, the uh, commemorations of the 9th of May in Ukraine. So both sides actually referred to this uh, to the to the symbolic resources of of this Soviet commemorative culture. Um, how would you describe the current memory politics in uh, Ukraine? Or what is prioritized? Is there any consistency? Is consistency an answer in general to the issues of uh, memory politics? Yeah, so um, again, it's, um, it's a question where I don't even know where to start because... <laughs> Because uh, uh, yeah, so after 
after the Euromaidan and with the in this uh, new like post Maidan Ukraine, one could talk about certain political line. Yeah, there was uh, the the Institute for National Remembrance uh, was very active in 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 shaping this this kind of new vision and then there was this uh, decommunization laws which um, <clears throat> introduced um, kind of new paradigm right and it was um, met with some criticism from uh, certain parts of, of the uh, Ukrainian society and political uh, but still one could see about certain agenda and certain certain tendency right um, uh, what what um, we can observe now, uh, I think, I think there is no such um, kind of uh, unite, uh, unified vision or no such agenda that the new leadership, um, political leadership of Ukraine, uh, would have. Yeah, and the Institute of National Remembrance. Uh, in my eyes, I'm not monitoring this uh, for a, um, a dialogue uh, rather than a kind of executive body, which this institute used to be uh, under Poroshenko. Yeah? And um, uh, it, it's, it's not, I think, that they are imposing uh, anything uh, in as, as the only vision, yeah? as the only... Uh, official narrative. Um, so for me, what what um, what we are we have been experiencing uh, during the last year or year and a half is more like depolitization and desecuritization of uh, the discourse of memory, which is probably not so bad. <laughs> Uh, because it it gives some um, space, I think, for, um, for 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 dialogue and for uh, deliberation. Yeah, something which was um, uh, rather difficult in in uh, in the years before. Again, some segments of the Ukrainian society, especially uh, among the the uh, like the activists, the people who uh, have been very much involved in in um, yeah in, in democratic reforms in Ukraine in in transformation processes. Uh, this kind of this can be perceived as a kind of vacuum, maybe that the the um, authorities don't know what they want, but um, on the other hand, I think it gives like some space to breathe and to 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 discuss, and it gives some some space for for local initiatives for kind of decentralized politics of memory, which is probably something which is a good thing for for the Ukrainian society right now. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. this is where I would probably stop. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, keeping in mind uh, memory politics, how can the Donbass and Crimea be positioned in the collective memorial um, space? And maybe what uh, uh, memory politics should be implemented in order to reintegrate uh, these two occupied um, geographical bodies uh, in the mm. Ukrainian territory? Uh, huh. uh, yeah, I I think uh, uh, the Donbas and Crimea are two different regions in this sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, because um, I don't think Crimea can be reintegrated by means of memory politics. It's it's a territory uh, which is now. Uh, part of the other state, right, with all political institutions, um, state institutions of the Russian Federation uh, now working to integrate Crimea in in Russia, right? And um, it's very little that Ukraine do um, in this respect uh, somehow to, to offer kind of alternative uh, without being able to be present, yeah, there. So I, I think what what concerns Crimea, I think it's very important that Crimea remains in our um, horizon of thinking and attention and and uh, um, discussions, yeah, that, that it's not um, forgotten and it's, um, we still consider it uh, a part of our imaginary space, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but in terms in terms of um, politics, I don't know what what um, we can do to uh, reintegrate Crimea without uh, yeah without challenging the. The military power of Russia, right? So, uh, Donbass is different because uh, Donbass is still somehow uh, is perceived as as a territory which one day can return, more return to Ukraine. Yeah, and Donbass is is divided by the current conflict. So, when we uh, talk about Donbass, we uh, mean actually. Uh, both parts, yeah, the, the part which is under control of Ukraine and the part which is not controlled by the Kiev government. Um, so uh, uh, Ukraine can do a lot on on the territory which is under the Ukrainian control. And I don't know if um, what uh, has been done before is is sufficient, yeah, because um, it's a very important issue how memory politics, which was uh, implemented in Ukraine after the Yevromaidan and especially the decommunization law, law the, uh, the legislation, the the uh, this kind of symbolic cleansing of the post-Soviet landscape, removing uh, communist monuments, renaming streets. Uh, it was, of course, um, not welcomed by everybody in in Eastern Ukraine, and Donbass is a very special region in this respect. 
we know it the 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 local identity is very much draws on on this soviet soviet legacy and the myth of the uh of the um uh donbass as a as a cradle of the proletarian um culture and and uh, economic achievements of soviet ukraine right so it's it's uh, it has been rather controversial and uh, in 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 terms of reintegrating ukraine yeah on the other hand i think it's uh, it's very important that there is this uh, uh, ukraine controlled part of donbass experienced all these changes with the rest of Ukraine, yeah, and and um, went through this uh, sometimes pay- painful, but I think still important transformations. And uh, still, I think what is really needed is is uh, more like politics of focusing on local initiatives, on uh, grassroots initiatives. Uh, on kind of decentralized memory politics involving, uh, I think, local communities into uh, this kind of everyday um, work and uh, reimagining, reimagining the, this territory and reinventing, renarrating the, uh, the 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 territory, the the identity of this territory, right? Uh, and I think there is still a lot to do in this respect. Um, uh, so you uh, teach on the Eastern European politics at the University of Vienna. And um, would you share um, your experience with us? Would you share with us what your students are interested in, in terms of Eastern European politics? Um, yeah, so I mm, uh, I have been teaching... Uh, different courses. For example, I'm teaching now uh, a course, um, a lecture course on nationalism after communism, which covers Eastern Europe and the post-Soviet space, and addresses actually the, this all this um, complexity of issues from nation building to ethnic conflicts and and the rise of uh, new nationalism, for example, in East Central Europe. Um, but I have been also teaching for many years courses on memory politics and and um, memory wars and uh, uh, in in Eastern Europe, right? Uh, but um, last semester I have been teaching uh, a course on memory wars, reconciliation, and uh, apology and reconciliation in international relations. So I was focusing on approaches in political science which um, which are uh, used in, in uh, international politics and international relations. So, for example, why some states apologize for the former atrocities and wrongdoings and others are not. Why some countries manage to reconcile and others fail. Um, and why in, in some cases for example, the most recent case is that uh, this memory war between Russia and Poland, which we could observe uh, last year, uh, uh, why some countries are uh, 
uh, indulging in, in such mnemonic battles to the extent that, that uh, their presidents start kind of writing mm-hmm. historical articles and, and uh, defending uh, what they think is historical truths, yeah. Uh, so these are interesting, interesting topics, and I, um, from from my experience, uh, students uh, are very interested in these topics. Not only Austrian students; we have a lot of Erasmus students at the University of Vienna. We have students from um, Eastern Europe. We have um, also, but also from from Western Europe, from Scandinavia. So. And and I mostly teach in English. Uh, that's why we have. Uh, I also have like a lot of international students, and it's always exciting to discuss such topics in in a multicultural environment, in a multinational environment, because um, yeah, they can bring the the mm-hmm. examples, and uh, we can see. Basically, that that um, what we think is going to be like uh, Eastern European uh, phenomenon, phenomenon, this memory wars, are uh, to to are not not at all uh, limited to Eastern Europe. Yeah, we could see uh, this eruption of of mnemonic conflicts all over the world, like in in the United States, it was. Uh, Black Lives Matters movement, which actually uh, questioned the legitimacy of the uh, of, of some historical monuments, and even this dismantled some of them. Um, and this this is a, a movement which had uh, echo in in also in Europe. We know that. Uh, some some statues of historical figures were desecrated uh, or um, torn down in 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 the UK, but also here in Vienna we had um, right now kind of um, controversy, which is an old controversy, but it was uh, somehow uh, through these events, global kind of events. Uh, uh, came to the fore again. This is a controversy around the former mayor of Vienna, Karl Luega, who is uh, considered the modernizer of Vienna. So the, the mayor of Vienna before the World War One, uh, but because he uh, he is considered uh, to be anti-Semitic in his uh, statements and his uh, yeah, so he. He is now uh, a questionable, uh, again contested personality, and his monument in Vienna was uh, became a site of protests and and art uh, artistic interventions and 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 uh, uh, open conflicts. And um, uh, I uh, was a witness of this. Um, Escalation in the last weeks, and one of the um, um, assignments that my students, for example, had this semester was to compare uh, contested monuments in various contexts, mm-hmm. starting from the from Eastern European context 
to to Austria, to the United States. Um, and I think we will find more similarities than we think if we look at at this uh, phenomenon in a comparative way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I usually conclude uh, our interviews with this question about my guests' recent uh, research projects. Um, would you uh, tell us just a few words about your recent project? Is it in any way connected with this volume that was published a few years ago? Um, I I wrote uh, several uh, several papers which somehow deal with various aspects of memory politics in in uh, in Ukraine, but not not only in Ukraine. So my my kind of long term interest is this uh, the the memory. Um, controversies about memory politics uh, between Ukraine and Russia. And I got interested in uh, one particular uh, historical figure, commemoration of this historical figure, who is the um, Prince Vladimir, Vladimir, who who is considered both in Ukraine and in Russia as a kind of a a founder of, 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 uh, of the nation. Uh, so he, in a way, he unites and divides Ukrainians mm-hmm. and Russians. And uh, for me, it was interesting to see how uh, actually we know that there is one monument to Vladimir, uh, Vladimir in Kiev, which is from the uh, from the nineteenth century, from the imperial uh, times. Um, but uh, in the post-Soviet era, one could monuments to Vladimir or Vladimir in Ukraine and in Russia. Many of them are local projects, others more like inspired from above. We we remember uh, this uh, initiative, the project which was supported by President Putin uh, uh, some years ago. A huge statue of Vladimir was uh, erected in Moscow in the near Kremlin in the central part of Moscow. So I became interested in in this phenomenon, kind of proliferation of Vladimir's or Vladimir's in both countries, mm-hmm. and also in the in the uh, religious um, uh, uses of these statues because um, they are. Interestingly enough, they are on a kind of boundary between um, sacral and... Yeah, so they are actually, uh, what I wanted to say, they are part of the public space, but they are also kind of sacral objects, yeah? But they are still not, um, from the orthodox tradition point of view, they are not the same as orthodox icons, yeah? And... And uh, it's it's a kind of borderland phenomenon, right? So they are um, in between. And uh, to some extent, I think there's also kind of influence of Soviet monumental art in, in this tradition to erect statues of orthodox uh, saints, and which was not part of the uh, original orthodox tradition in our part of the world. So... I um, this was one of the small projects which I worked on in 
recently and um, finished uh, my paper, which uh, I started uh, writing when I was doing research in Russia, namely in Murmansk and Veliki Novgorod. And I was interested in local uh, uh, local uh, memorial cultures of uh, World War Two, but also in the role that the local media is playing in in uh, uh, reproducing and reshaping these memorial cultures. And so this was uh, a project based on interviews with local journalists uh, in these two regions and. Um, it's it's actually very refreshing to see that the uh, local memory of the World War II in Russia is actually very uh, different in different regions, and there is also a plurality of local actors and uh, communities of memory involved in these initiatives and and uh, and on in, in local politics of memory, shaping it from below, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, so this this is uh, another paper which I was working on recently. Well, um, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Tatiana. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today. Uh, and thank you for this volume that um, nuances and details the memory politics strategies developed and uh, implemented in these three countries, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And uh, your volume um, offers this uh, excellent opportunity to trace different trajectories that the three countries, which used to share some commemorative practices, now engage in with different practices and they illustrate these different practices. Uh, thank you so much, Tatiana. Uh, thank you, Natalia. Today I spoke with Tatiana Zhurzhenko, one of the editors of War and Memory in Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, published by uh, Palgrave Macmillan in 2017. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. <laughs>